The Lord be with you. Let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Heavenly Father, we beseech Thee, in the name of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, to send Thy Holy Spirit to us this day. Touch our hearts, O God, with Thy Word and the faith of Thy Church. May Thy truth take deep root in our hearts and bear forth much fruit. May we grow in our understanding of Thy Word and the faith. And we pray, O God, that it would bear forth much fruit in our lives. Give us courage to share the good news within us with others. Others, too, may seek Thee, to know Thee, and to be known by Thee. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, please be seated, and we will begin. Um, So today, we are looking at Uh, the other sacraments of the Church outside of Holy Eucharist and Holy Communion. Now that very statement, other sacraments, is somewhat controversial uh, already. And uh, that is because that in Anglicanism, post-Reformation Anglicanism, there is a uh, distinction made between the two sacraments of Holy Baptism and Holy Eucharist, and the five other commonly called sacraments, confirmation, confession with absolution, um, holy unction, holy matrimony, ordination. Okay. Um, Let's go back in time, uh, firstly, to the patristic church. The patristic church was not clear on exactly how many sacraments there are. The number that traditionally has been assigned to the sacraments is the number seven. However, um, the fathers, some listed less than seven, some listed more than seven. Um, But really for the fathers, and this is true for Eastern Orthodoxy still to this day, there's a reluctancy to be pinned down on the number of sacraments. They see life itself as sacramental. Why? Because our life is in Christ, and Christ is himself the great sacrament. A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace assuredly given and bestowed through the sign. When you think of it that way, what greater sacrament is there than the person of Jesus? God's presence, God's love, God's mercy, God's forgiveness, God's truth, God's healing, God's mystery, God's very being is made known in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh, and so he is, in that sense, the ultimate sacrament. And so since our life is fully embedded in the person of Christ, life itself is for us sacramental. Okay. 
And so there's a reluctancy in Eastern Orthodoxy and in the Patristic Church to uh, name the exact number of sacraments because they view life itself as sacramental. In the Patristic Church and still in Eastern Orthodoxy, there's a reluctancy to name the exact number of sacraments. The reason for this is because life itself is seen as sacramental. Our life is embedded in Christ, who is himself the ultimate sacrament. God's grace, God's presence, God's being, God's love, God's mercy, God's truth is made known and manifested through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So he is himself the ultimate sacrament, and because our life is in Christ, our life is, by definition, sacramental. Some of the early church fathers, as I mentioned, had more than seven. Some had less than seven. Um, But really the focus was on life itself being sacramental. Now this idea of God conveying his presence and his truth, his healing, his mercy through the created order is clearly grounded in the word of God, both the Old and New Testament. When we go back to Genesis, God creates all things in heaven and on earth And he says that they are what? Good. So unlike Eastern religions, this world is not illusionary. This world is created by God and this world is good. Now it has fallen as a result of sin and is very far gone in many ways. But in essence, it is created good. And just as art expresses something of the artist, you can't look at a sculpture and have it be completely detached from the person who created it or a piece uh, or a painting and have it be completely uh, devoid of anything of the, the person, right? So the creation uh, is an icon though somewhat a distorted icon because of the fall, the creation is an icon of God the Creator. The creation reflects the majesty, the beauty, the power, the wonder, the mystery of God. Okay, Um, And so the idea of sacrament goes back to this very notion that unlike Eastern religions, This world, the created order, is not considered to be illusionary or evil or something simply to be escaped or left behind um, or that we will evolve beyond it, but rather it is part of God's plan. The creation is not the result of, of sin, but rather the creation is good and is distorted by sin. Is everyone with me so far? Because of this, God worked through the created order. So some examples from the Old Testament. We are told in the Ten Commandments not to worship uh, images, graven images, but that is sometimes taken out of context. The commandment really is that we not worship them as idols, as false gods, okay? 
because God himself commands the making of images. Can anyone name one? What's that? Well, that's it. Yes, it's a good point. It was going to go there later. But man, man himself is created in the image of God. I've been to churches where they say, we have no images in our church. And I say, oh, you have no people? So that's that very point. We are created in the image of God. We are icons of the creator. Okay, as all of creation is an icon of the creator. Okay, um, uh, so man, can someone give us another example? The Ark of the Covenant, God commands the making of angelic statues made of gold, hammered work. He actually commands the making of these, overseeing the mercy seat, which is where they believe God's presence was, which is why in some high Anglican churches, you will have uh, little statues of angels on either side of the tabernacle, and they're in a kneeling position adoring the presence of Christ. Um, it, it is neat. It is neat. And um, I used to have two beautiful little angels for that. That it, it, it just wasn't gaudy, you know. They were really like bronze looking, very nice. And I can't find them anymore on the internet. So, um, but that's the idea. God commands that. What's another image that God commands the making of? Yeah, the serpent. Um, the serpent, which we are told is an icon of what and a foreshadowing of what? We're told this in John. Of Christ on the cross, when I am lifted up, right? Uh, because those who were bit by the snakes would look at this bronze serpent and be healed. So we who are bitten by the enemy, the serpent of old, look to the cross and we find the remedy, okay? We are healed. Um, however, God commands that the bronze serpent later be destroyed. Does anyone know why? People started to worship it as an idol, as an idol. Now, it's interesting. A lot of people freak out at this teaching, but I'm going to mention it, that it was okay to worship um, people in the Old Testament because the word worship meant worthy, worth-ship. And so um, people would bow down, but it wasn't in the sense of you are my God, so I worship you, right? It was in a sense of respect. Um, I have placed you under my authority. I see you as greater than I, or I live for you. What do many men do when they're asking a woman to marry them? They get down on one knee, genuflection. The idea is what? I wish to no longer live for myself, but for you. I'm giving you my life, right? Um, and so that was not condemned. Obeisance was commonly done in the uh, Old Testament. The problem is that the word worship in English has come to mean what we do to God. So when you read ancient texts and they say, well, the early Christians worship Mary, people freak out. 
But what it meant was to um, uh, revere Mary or to respect Mary or to give Mary honor. The word adore was for God. So you worship the saints and you adore God. Now we have them switched. We worship God and we adore puppies, right? Or little babies. Oh, he's adorable. In the ancient world, that would mean that he's worthy of worship to the extent that this baby is God. Only one baby has ever been adorable. Jesus, right. Jesus. And Sarah and Rebecca. No, uh, <laughs> Jesus, right. Um, there are some babies that have been born that think they're adorable. You have one. <laughs> I think they're worthy of adoration, right? Uh, so, um, uh, so this is, right, important. But God worked through the created order in many ways in the Old Testament. We also see, see the bones of the prophet Elisha. Not Elijah. His bones were taken, right? But Elisha, uh, a dead man, is thrown into the grave. He lands on the bones of Elisha. Remember, in the Old Testament, only individuals were anointed and had the Spirit. Prophets were one of the individuals, uh, one of the sets of individuals, prophets, kings, okay, priests, who had anointing, right? In the New Covenant, we all have been anointed by God, right? But back then, prophets were anointed by God. Uh, and because we are a body-soul creation, because we are sacramental or incarnational, the body is part of who we are. Therefore, when this dead man lands on the bones of the prophet, it's not that the prophet is gone because his spirit is gone. The bones are part of who that prophet is because we are a body-soul creation, right? Uh, and so what happens to the dead man when he lands on the bones of the prophet Elisha? He comes back to life, right. He comes back to life. Um, the staff of Moses is another uh, example. So there are many examples of God communicating his healing and his power through the created order, through the people of God, through the bronze serpent, uh, through the staff of Moses, etc., uh, etc. Okay, and so this is laying the foundation for the sacramental life. Deacon Susie? Would you say that these things are all icons? Yeah, I would say that they are, that they are icons. We are icons of God. We're created in His image and likeness. I would say uh, that um, John tells us that the, um, the bronze serpent was an, an icon, a foreshadowing of uh, Christ on the cross. Um, and, uh, and certainly the, the angels made of golden hammered work overlooking the mercy seat were images, you know, which in Greek is the word icon. Oh, the stone, yeah, well, and, and the bones really are first-class relics. I mean, they are relics. Um, you know, what happens is that these things get abused. When the, they start worshiping through adoration, the bronze serpent, God has it destroyed, right? What happens with relics in, in, in the church? Relics go back 
uh, to the very ancient church, and we see foreshadowings of them in the Old Testament, as I've mentioned. But in the New Testament, there, there are references to not only first-class relics, but second-class relics. Does everyone know what a second-class relic is? If you had a first-class relic of Elvis Presley, you have a piece of Elvis Presley, right? Like, you know, <gasps> if you have a second-class relic, you have one of Elvis's scarves, okay? It's something that's been touched to the body of the, the person and then takes... Well, what's an example of a, a second-class relic in the New Testament? No. The veil. Oh. The cross. <laughs> the, the <laughs> no, Paul talks about in the Acts of the Apostles that um, handkerchiefs were touched to the Apostle Paul and were taken to the sick. And that as many as were touched by those handkerchiefs were made what? Perfectly well, it says. These are second-class relics. So there's actually first-class and second-class relics in the scriptures. What happens, however, is that the church abused these things. And that's why um, many Anglicans are very reluctant to talk about relics and are very reluctant to have like a statue of St. Michael the Archangel in their church because of the abuse of these things. And that's not what we're going to talk about today. But my, my point here is to say that where does the, the concept of sacrament come from? It's grounded, uh, first of all, in the creation. That God, the creator, brings forth his creation and the creation is good that the creation reflects something of the creator. It is an icon of God, though distorted by the fall. That man himself is the icon of God, made in the image of God, though again distorted by the fall. That God commands the making of certain images. Um, that, there are, uh, that God heals often through his created order. Okay? Our religion is an incarnational religion, right? Um, God conveys his presence, his healing, his mercy, his goodness and truth, not in opposition to the created order, that's Eastern religion, but through the created order. Okay? So the inward and spiritual grace in holy baptism is entrance into the covenant, membership in the church, the body of Christ, uh, the promises of becoming an heir of the covenant, the benefits of the cross, the being washed in the blood of Jesus, etc., etc. But what is the outward invisible sign in baptism? Water. Water. Um, the inward invisible grace given in the sacrament of Holy Eucharist is, is the body and blood of Christ. What is the outward invisible sign? Bread and wine, right, bread and wine. Uh, so it is the laying on of hands for ordination, the laying on of hands or the anointing with healing oils for the sacrament of, of healing, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So these, um, this idea in Christianity, historic Christianity, God reveals his presence and his grace, his mercy, his truth, his goodness, et cetera, through the created order, 
not in opposition to the created order. So it's established in creation, it's manifest in both the Old and New Testament, and the prime example or the zenith of all examples is the person of Christ himself. Um, the second person of the Trinity does not enter this world, as the Gnostics believed, as a spirit only seemingly being human. He actually became flesh. He doesn't convey himself just spiritually, but physically. The resurrection is not just a spiritual resurrection, but a physical resurrection, a bodily resurrection. Is everyone with me on this? So our theology is clearly grounded in the person of Christ and in the creation from the beginning. So if this is just an outward sign, let's say baptism, for example, um, with the, you know, the, the water being an outward sign, mm -hmm. um, it, it seems like there is a, you know, you've already been baptized, you're just going through this outward sign that says, okay, here I'm formalizing it now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if that's the case, then, you know, with the other sacraments, like, for example, marriage, mm -hmm. you know, I'm already married. Why do I need to, yeah. you know? And, and let me talk about this briefly. First of all, the sacraments are signs, not symbols. What you're talking about theologically is a symbol in, in Western use of the word. So a symbol points beyond itself to a spiritual reality. A sign, theologically, not only points beyond itself to a spiritual reality, it also participates in and is the instrument which conveys the spiritual reality. Okay? So the sacraments are signs, not symbols. Okay? So, um, so that, that would be the first thing to, to point out there. The, the second is that while God is not limited... Um, to the, the sacraments. The sacraments are marked moments and assured moments of that grace. So someone can come to me and say, Father Michael, I am not baptized, but I, I feel within my heart that Christ is in me and I am in him. Okay? Uh, I feel as if I've been born again. And that may be very much true, but their testimony is subjective, okay? When they are baptized, that is the objective moment, the marked moment, the assurance of what has been given, okay? That they truly are in Christ and Christ in, is in them, okay? God can touch us with his presence in many ways every day. And in one sense, we're always in his presence, okay? But the Eucharist becomes that marked moment, that assured moment where the presence of Jesus Christ is conveyed to us in a tangible and assured way, okay? So I'll give you another example. Um, Christine and I have used this before, but I'll tell you again because it always makes people laugh and it's a good point. It makes the point. Christine really struggled with this idea of sacraments because in many ways Southern Baptists are um, Gnostics who believe in the Incarnation. Their emphasis is on the spiritual. Spiritual, spiritual, spiritual. 
okay? Um, not the physical or the tangible. So for them, the physical and tangible becomes symbolic. So in other words, I have given myself to Christ. I am in Christ. Christ is in me. As a public witness to this, I will be baptized, and it symbolizes that I've died with Christ, and I am now a new creature. But no grace is conveyed in that moment. It's already happened. It's just a symbol. Well, the only problem with that is that our religion is not a spiritual religion. It's an incarnational religion where God conveys himself not in opposition to the created order, but in and through the created order. That's number one. Number two, it's also not biblical. There's plenty of passages where Paul talks about baptism as being the instrument which conveys the grace of God. Okay? Um, uh, and uh, and then the, the next problem would be if it's only a symbol to proclaim what has already happened, then to whom was the eunuch from Ethiopia witnessing? To whom? Philip? Because they were the only ones present. To whom was Paul, St. Paul, witnessing? Ananias? Because they were the only ones present. And in fact, if baptism is purely symbolic and a public witness of what God has done, drag Paul, who's been the persecutor of Christians, out into the streets in front of all of Jerusalem and baptize them. Because that's going to be powerful. But what does Ananias say to him? Even though he's already met the risen Christ, he's had a personal encounter with the risen Christ that has changed his life, Ananias says to him, Why are you tarrying? Arise, call on the name of the Lord, be baptized, and wash away your sins. Okay? Um, so to whom was he witnessing? Uh, and again, if baptism is purely a public witness, remember when 3,000 people on Pentecost received the word of the, the um, apostles and they, uh, they come to Jesus? They baptize all 3,000 of them. That was probably a long service. <laughs> right? Um, yeah, why not baptize one person for every thousand, for example? You've all come to Jesus. You know, you, you, and you, come forward, be baptized as a sign of what God has done today among you all. No, that's not what Peter says. Peter says, every, they say, what must we do? Meaning, what must we do to be saved? And he says, let every one of you be baptized. We'll see it later, actually. Let every one of you be baptized. So the problem with the symbolic and the purely spiritual is that, number one, our, our religion is not a spiritual religion. It's an incarnational religion. Number two, this is grounded not only in the incarnation, but in the creation. Um, and number three, the Bible just clearly does not lend itself to this. However, so Christine was having trouble with this, and I made the, the point between subjective and objective. Now, you've got to remember, she was Southern Baptist at this point, right? And so we were talking, and she goes, ah, just, this idea that you've got to be baptized to be in Christ. First of all, they saw it as a work, like you, something you did. Baptism is something that who does? God does. It's not a work, it's a gift, okay? 
Uh, that'd be like saying reading the Bible is a work, right? It's, it's a gift from God that we receive, okay? But so that was a problem too. She saw it as a work, but she's like, I just can't get it. So anyway, I said, well, you know, baptism is like marriage. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, okay, here we go. I got it. So I said, Christine, do you, do you love me? And she said, yeah. So I'm like, I was on the other side of the phone. And I said, would you say you're in love with me? And she said, yes. And so I said, do you believe that this is the movement of the Spirit within your heart? She said, yeah, I believe that it's come from God. So I'm like, good. Uh, Otherwise, it would be lust, which is perfectly understandable. But, you know, not the case here. Um, And so I said, okay, so you, Bob, she's shaking his head. I'm going to be a deacon for this guy. So, uh, <laughs> and, right? so uh, you, you know, so I'm thinking, okay, so you love me. You're in love with me, which means you can't comprehend your dreams or part from my being within them, which is, for me, the definition of being in love. And you believe this is God at work within your heart. Yes. I said, okay. Do you believe spiritually that you and I are one so if I were to die tonight that you would feel truly like you lost your as kids say today soulmate right you've lost and she said yeah and I said okay so you believe that a radical change has happened you went from not loving me to loving me not being in love with me to being in love with me um oh I also asked her would you be willing to lay down your life for me would you die for me she said yeah Good, don't ask me. No, I, I would. And so it's so radical that you're willing even to die for me, right? And you believe this is of God, and you believe we're kind of like soulmates, that we're already one, right? I said, great. I remember this was on a Sunday night that we were talking, and I had Mondays off, and I said, can you get tomorrow off? She's like, probably not, but why? I said, I'm going to fly out. Tomorrow's my day off. I'm going to fly out. She lived in Virginia. I'm going to fly out. I said, let's take the day off. And since we're already one, let's say that to a Southern Baptist girl. Thank you. (laughs) Let's go out and buy sneakers. Yes, yeah. Uh, You know, let's communicate, right? Um, and she's like, oh, no, you can't do that because we haven't been... Oh. And she saw what I was doing. Right. All of So there are people that say, I am in Jesus, Jesus is in me, this is the work of God, da, 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 da. But they haven't had that moment of marriage where it's, it's no longer subjective but objective. It's a marked moment, an assured moment where the, the church witnesses... Not the individual, but the church, the covenant community, that this person is in Christ and Christ in this person. Okay? And that's what a sacrament uh, is. And so it's not that God's not already at work. He is, but it's, it's incarnational. Okay? Was God in one sense already in the world before the incarnation? Yes, but it's a, it's a pretty big marked moment when he enters uh, the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the temporal and the eternal are united uh, in, in her, right? Karen. So, you know you said that God is present or 
Typically, not all sacraments have the, uh, the exact nature. So there are some sacraments that can be done by anyone under certain circumstances, lay or ordained, though it might be the norm that it's the ordained. Then there are certain sacraments that can be done by priests that can't be done by laypersons. And then there are sacraments that can be done only by bishops. And, and not priests, okay? So, for example, while it is the norm that a priest or, well, bishop in the early church and then subsequently as their vicars, priests who baptize, and I would argue deacons could baptize clearly as well because that Philip I was talking about is not Philip the apostle but Philip the deacon, okay? It's the norm. Laity can baptize in an emergency, so if you were at work having a conversation with someone about the importance of coming to Christ and being baptized, and they were like, I, you know, you're really getting through to me. I can't believe this, Karen. And then all of a sudden, gee, I don't feel too well. And, you know, start having a heart attack, right? You could actually baptize them um, with water and say, so-and-so, I baptize you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So yeah. I guess I'm trying to think about the fact that it's not just simply a marked moment. It's not just simply a marked moment, but it's it's either within a congregation of a church or there's an ordained person. Yes, that the and, and of Christ and that, right. that sort of Holy Spirit presence through yeah. a vehicle that's been sanctioned over. Right. And it's the church which is the body of Christ and the recipient of the Spirit of God that bears witness to this, not the individual. It's not based on feelings. It's not based on personal experience alone or individual experience, I should say. It is the church bearing witness to God's power in it. So, yeah, so it takes away that, you know, pure individualism. Just like at the creation, the words that are used in connection with the sacraments fix something. Yes. They take what might they take something that might be indeterminate or even non-existent um, and bring it into being. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's the power of the word, which again gets back to incarnational. It's the power of the word that through the spirit affects something. You know, when we say with water, you know, now sanctify these waters by the power of thy Holy Spirit, right? the laying on of hands, receive the Holy Ghost for the office and work of a deacon in the church of God, now committed unto thee, but through the laying on of our hands. You know, uh, we lay hands and anoint the sick, and, you know, we proclaim the word to them. So, it, it, and again, that's very incarnational, the word. And this is found even in Orthodox Judaism. In Orthodox Judaism, you cannot pray purely spiritually. In other words, you can't be... Now, in my mind, I just said, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy and anoint everyone in this room. In Orthodox Judaism, I would at least have to say, well, they wouldn't say Lord Jesus Christ, but you know what I mean. Lord Jesus Christ, anoint everyone in this room. I have to speak it. It has to be incarnate, in a sense, uh, for it to have be efficacious and, and power, powerful. 
And uh, so, yeah, that, in that sense, it's very incarnational. Yes, Karen. Yeah. Yeah, and and there's not always a recognition of the power of these things because they don't it's more, more symbolic. And so yeah, and and that does become Right, yeah, absolutely. Although it's interesting, a long time ago, uh, years ago now, um, as I have said, I grew up in an unusual Roman Catholic home, and, you know, stereotypically now, I'm generalizing, but in that we read the Bible quite frequently. Um, it, that was not unusual, you know, for my parents and I to, you know, lay in bed at night and read, in, uh, and I'm talking, I'm like 12 at this point, I'm not two, right, and read the Bible and, and that kind of thing. Um, and so I grew up with that, but I knew the Bible was, you know, God's word. I knew that, um, sorry, um, I knew that the Bible was God's word. I knew that you read it to know about the person of Jesus and how God created things about his, Jesus's life, death and resurrection, Pentecost. I knew that you read it to know what's right and what's wrong. But that whole concept that there is a power conveyed through the Word of God, a power to release me from sin, a power to overcome temptation, uh, a, a power of salvation, um, that was kind of something I came to understand more fully as I, I became more evangelical and hung around with evangelicals. And one day it just dawned on me, ah, they don't use the term but they have a sacramental view of the Word of God that it conveys through the, the Word God's power and presence and grace. And so as soon as I was able to put it into a way I understood, it was like I was opening up almost a whole new book. You know? that, that's a good segue to this question. If you don't believe that the sacrament Is it communicating anything? Is it really the sacrament to begin with? <laughs> uh, if, yes, say you're, yeah. you're performing yes. a baptism on an adult and they've got their fingers crossed behind their back or something of that sort. Yeah. <laughs> well, couldn't you also say conversely, so, if you do believe, if you're evangelical, uh, Baptist, whatever, that you have received the Spirit, then you have. Yeah, and I would say no and no. Um, and... Uh, uh, because I'm not a Presbyterian, by the way, this is why, because they do believe that. Um, so I would say that actually even, uh, even Calvin in, in writing regarding the sacrament would say, it is the body and blood of Christ that is given. How you receive it, your disposition, whether you, you receive it in faith or not, is how it works within you. So if you receive it in faith, it will work to your benefit. If you receive it not in faith, it will work to your judgment and condemnation. But it's still the sacrament. It's how, it's how it's affected within you. Is it to your benefit or not? But it's still the sacrament. 
So, for example, in yeah. is uh, able to receive uh, Holy Communion uh, in the church. Well, presumably, lots of people have received baptism not believing that they are getting anything. Yeah, well, that, that's a little bit of a misnomer. It is true in practice. If you go to most ACNA churches, they say all baptized people are received to receive Holy Communion. Well, the only problem with that is that's not the prayer book tradition. The prayer book tradition is more in line, I believe, of course, since I wrote it, with what we require people to do before they receive. If you read the exhortation, for example, it says um, that it's not only that you're baptized, but that you approach the sacrament with faith. Otherwise, do not approach the sacrament, which is why in, in our bulletin every week it says, if you profess Christ as your Lord and Savior and have been baptized and have confessed your sins and asked for forgiveness because Paul warns in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that you examine your conscience before you come and if you believe that it's the body and blood of Christ by faith, then you can receive. Otherwise, don't. And it's not because I'm trying to be mean. Well, it is a little bit. But uh, it's mainly because I'm trying to protect them from this very thing of eating and drinking to their own condemnation. Um, So, for example, if you read the exhortation, which we read um, twice a year anyway, Beloved in the Lord, our Savior Christ on the night before he suffered instituted the sacrament of his body and blood as a sign, so not a symbol, a sign and pledge of his love. For the continual remembrance, and in that Greek, the word anamnesis, to make present, for something of the past to break into the moment, of the sacrifice of his death, and for spiritual sharing in his risen life. For in these holy mysteries, we are made one with Christ and Christ with us. We are made one body in him and members of one another. So that's far beyond a symbol. I mean, big stuff is happening there. Having in mind, therefore, his great love for us and in obedience to his command, his church renders to Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, never-ending thanks for the creation of the world, for his continual providence over us, for his love for mankind, for all mankind, it says, and for the redemption of the world by our Savior Christ, who took upon himself our flesh and humbled himself even to death on the cross, that he might make us the children of God by the power of the Holy Spirit and exalt us to everlasting life. So there, again, just as I did, it establishes this whole context of sacramental sac- sacramentality in both the creation and the incarnation in that paragraph. But if we are to share rightly in the celebration of those holy mysteries and be nourished by that spiritual food, we must remember the dignity of that holy sacrament. I therefore call upon you to consider how St. Paul exhorts all persons to prepare themselves carefully before eating of that bread, with a capital B, and drinking of that cup, capital C. For as the benefit is great, if with penitent hearts and living faith we receive the holy sacrament, so is the danger great if we receive it improperly, not recognizing the Lord's body. Judge yourselves, therefore, lest 
you be judged by the Lord. Examine your lives and conduct by the rule of God's commandment that you may perceive wherein you have offended. And it goes on and on and on. And then this is my favorite part. And if, you, and if in your preparation you need help and counsel, then go and open your grief to a discreet and understanding priest. I always love that. As if, you know, there's a lot of uh, priests out there that aren't discreet and aren't very understanding. So make sure that they're discreet and understanding before you confess to them. Um, and so it goes on. So, you know, I would say this idea of come and get it as long as you're baptized, which in practice you do see, even in a lot of ACNA churches, is not the Anglican position, prayer book position, of who can receive and who cannot receive the sacrament. So. Um, and so when you receive it in faith, um, it's to your benefit. And when you don't receive it to, in, in faith, it, it's not. Um, I would say that for some, it can lay dormant. And again, I um, like baptism. And I, I'll use the example of marriage. Let's say that 10 plus years ago when I married Christine, let's say that I wasn't a Christian or, you know, maybe was baptized when I was a kid, but maybe went to church a few times, but really wasn't into it. But I, I liked her car and, you know, she made a lot of money. So, you know, I liked her. Right. And so we get married and we go to church and I sit through the classes, you know, uh, how many children, how many children are we going to have? All right, two. Yeah, see, we're compatible, right? And we, you know, we go through it, da da da, and we get married, right, in a church. Now, let's say five years later. Now, in one sense, the Bible says what? We are one. We are no longer two, but are one, right? But let's say five years later, ten years later, whatever. I am really moved in my heart to realize the gift that Christine is to me from God. Okay, And in that moment, by God's Spirit, um, it comes alive within me. I'm awakened to what it is that I have. Is that the moment we got married? No, we got married five, ten years ago, right? But, in a sense, something is absolutely given when we were married, and in another sense, it's laid dormant, until I was awakened to what it is. Sadly, there are people out there who are in Christ through baptism, but in another sense, the grace that was given lies dormant within them. They're, they're waiting for that awakening moment. Unfortunately, a lot of people confuse that moment of awakening with the moment that they became a, a Christian. Now, you could make the argument that that's when I really started living out the marriage, too. You know what I mean? I mean, that's a strong argument, too. But that's not when we were married. We were married 10 years before. Mary. Um, if marriage is a sacrament and two people get married, but not, like, by somebody who's ordained, does that mean they're not married? They go to hell. Even before they die, okay. they're in hell. <laughs> No, um, just kidding again, by the way, people listening. You know what? It's, it's, it's tough, and the church is somewhat unclear on this. In the Eastern tradition, going way back, um, the two getting married um, had to not only be in Christ, but had to be married in, in the church by, by a priest. Um, and, but in the Western tradition, that's not so. 
the ministers of the sacrament are the two Christians, the husband and wife. Now it's even more complicated if one is not baptized, right? But the ministers of the sacrament in that, in that case are the husband and wife, okay? And the vows that they take are the words being spoken and then that's lived out that night, okay? And that brings about the fullness of, of everything there. Um, and so it, it actually is unclear. Um, however, you know, I just had someone recently come up to me and say, you know what, I'm married, but we got married by a justice of, of the peace. And they said, so in one sense, I look at it as we are married, but in another sense, like we don't necessarily have holy matrimony, this kind of sacramental fuller understanding that we're not only together, but together in Christ as Christ is with the church. And so can we talk, Father Michael, about possibly having a blessing of our marriage so that we can move from being married to holy matrimony? And so now it's tough. What if that husband comes to me and says, well, what are you saying? You're saying I'm not married? No, I'm not saying that. Or you're saying there's no grace? No, I'm not saying that either. I'm, I'm, but, you know, so it does become problematic. On the other hand, um, you know, uh, holy matrimony is seen where God is a part of it. And that's not always the case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're definitely not married in the sense that they represent Christ and his bride because they're not in Christ, you, you know? And so, and this becomes a very, and I don't want to get off on this topic because it would take the whole rest of the time, but this is where I've argued for some people before they come to Christ in baptism that, they, you know, hey, I was abused as a child and I was married like five times. And then I came to Jesus Christ and I got married. You know how many times I've been married? I would argue once, <laughs> you know. But some evangelicals would say, no, she's been married six times. You know, and I don't know. You know, what we say when you're baptized, your life before is dead. It's over. It's ended. It's what you do after that that you're accountable for. But then you get into this other sticky wicket where, well, okay, what about in our culture where we baptize people we probably shouldn't be baptizing, right? Because they haven't really committed themselves to Christ, right? Um, and then, like, you know, they still do all this kind of stuff. And then 15 years later, they really have that awakening moment. And now they're like, now I get it. Right now, in one sense, they did. They're in Christ back here, but in another sense, whose fault is it? Theirs or the churches that they got baptized? You, you know, um, and you know, I, I got to say, was I, I was moved to, to tears in that when Connie was taking her vows to renounce Satan and to accept Christ, that tears were pouring out of her eyes. Because I'm thinking, this is what it's supposed to look like, you know. And I'm like, well, the bad news, you're responsible for everything now, lady. You know what I mean? But, but how many priests just, you know, kind of baptize people and, you know, and so it becomes theologically, you know, problematic, you know, it does. But yeah, I would, I would agree with you. And um, so it, it, it's hard. Uh, Jordan, and then we're going to move on. <laughs> just, yeah, real quick. 
maybe it doesn't though, but it was my understanding that if the minister, the priest, for example, in the Episcopal Church is corrupt, does their working of sacraments through them become... Still valid. So you would take uh, communion in the Episcopal Church? No, I didn't say that. Oh, okay. But if I was dying... Uh, and one was there, it would still be, it would still be, a, it would still be valid. Um, but I, the reason I wouldn't is because of public witness. Is it okay for someone to deny the Trinity and deny the Incarnation uh, and to deny the authority of Scripture and, and just go on like it's all good? No, it's not. And so if I go to that service and participate in it and receive from them, I am giving witness to that it kind of is okay, right? That's kind of a secondary issue. Denying the Trinity, right? But the sacraments are still valid. And, you know, a perfect example from the Old Testament, God anoints Saul as king of Israel. God removes him as king. God says, you know, I take away, you know, everything and da-da, I'm putting someone else on. And yet his anointing was still considered permanent and valid. Um, Because when David has the chance to kill him, his response is, I shall not touch God's anointed. Even though he literally caught him with his pants down. Literally. Yeah. (laughs) If you don't know the story, Saul was going to the bathroom in a cave and had his pants down and couldn't move. And they were like... And David's like, yeah, not no. And then later, even though he's been removed by God, everything, later... um, uh, uh, what happens? The man who kills Saul, David has him put to death, right? Because of the anointing. And that's why, uh, again, when we were leaving the, the Episcopal Church, and I don't think you should ever throw a bishop off lightly. I mean, it can't be, I don't like him, or he was mean to me, or, you know, he's not high church enough. Or I mean, you have to be ready to answer before the throne of God. Right, because they are God's anointed. You are under their authority. You should not take it lightly. Right. Um, so, um, but we felt in that we could answer before the throne of God because of what has been denied. Right. We had to choose the gospel over the person. But even when I was leaving that bishop's office that day, when we were leaving, you know, he stood at the door. You know, said goodbye to people, and when it got to me. I genuflected on one knee and kissed his ring. And exactly what went through my mind was David. I, what, what I was saying is, you're still God's anointed. You're still God's anointed. But you're Saul. You, you know? So it was both recognizing God's anointing, but also recognizing how far the person had departed from it. You know? So. Yeah. I'll give you, and then to do the other sacraments, we really have to move on. And you may not agree with this. I'm going to give you an example, and you chew on it. It's what Father Terrence calls a theological chewy, okay? Uh, And if a person came to me, now this might be controversial, maybe I'm stupid to use this example, but if a person came to me and said, "Um, Father Michael, um, I've been in your parish for a year now, you don't know this, but I, I struggle with homosexuality. 
Okay. Um, and sometimes in that struggle, um, I, I fall. I act out. Okay. Um, my desire, though, is whatever God wants for me. Not what the culture says, not what the latest book says. I really, truly am trying the best I can to seek God in all of this. Okay? This actually was based on a true story. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Um, and you know what? I'm not saying I'm very strong. I'm, I'm pretty weak. But I'm trying. Um, can I stay part of your church family and can I continue to receive the sacrament? What do you think my answer is? Yeah. Yep, absolutely. If they come to me and say, you know what, I know what the church teaches, I know what the Bible says, but I don't, I, I don't care. You know, that, that, that's just wrong. And then I say, well, look, you know, I'm going to call you to repentance. And they say, no, I'm not. Then they're not free to receive the sacrament. But, I mean, but that's true with, with anyone. If someone comes and says, if Bob comes to me and says, you know, Praveen and I just have been really butting heads, right? And I have a hard time with Praveen. Now, I, this is a good example because he is having a... No, because, I mean, it's, I mean, because it's fictitious. Uh, it's mutual. It, <laughs> it's mutual. Now I really have my work cut off for me, right? Uh, because it's fictitious, right? But he says to me, I, it's hard. I can't. I find it hard to, to like that guy or to pray for him or to work with him. But because of your counsel, Father Michael, I am trying to pray for him. I'm trying to forgive him. I'm trying to live into that, uh, etc. Can I receive communion? Yeah, you need, you need it. You need the strength of the communion. But if he comes and says, you, you know what, um, I won't help that guy, and I, I'm closing my heart to him, period, and, you, you know, and I'm not going to pray for him, and I'm not going to forgive him, and I'm not going to da-da-da-da-da-da, Bob really shouldn't be receiving communion you know, at that point. So it really is a matter of hardness of heart versus being sinful, I mean, we're all sinful. We all fall short. It's a matter of hardness of, of heart.